prayed and why. Looking at the character, who prayed the prayer, let's learn a little bit about this person. Some of these characters have been more familiar to us than others. We'll look at the um, content, what's in the prayer. There's always rich doctrine and theology to be found. And of course, there's always application to be made. And so we'll look at the counsel. What can we learn from this prayer? How might the prayer teach us to better pray? That's our goal. So from where we were last week, we were in Habakkuk chapter 3, looking at Habakkuk's prayer. Um, he was kind of looking right at the, um, at the cusp, right at the before the Babylonians were to come in to invade Judah and carry them off into captivity. Now, today, we're moving forward about 70 years in biblical history. We're moving now towards the end of that captivity. Um, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. So go ahead and turn into Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, and I'll say a few more words to kind of bring us up to date, to help us understand uh, the context of how and why Daniel prays the way he does. Um, so as I said, we are now at the time when the exile will almost be over. The book of Daniel, I guess, to orient us, exists in kind of two parts. The first part of Daniel, chapters uh, 1 through 7, uh, could be described as what uh, commentators call court stories. These are the things that happened to Daniel and his friends when they were in the service of, first of all, in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, King Belshazzar, and then also in the Persian Empire, King Cyrus, and also King Darius. That's the first half of the book of Daniel. The second half, I think we're less familiar with. This is mostly prophecy. And the prayer we're going to look at today in chapter 9 kind of exists in the midst of, in between, some prophetic parts of Daniel. And it could be that for those of you that are more um, eschatologically minded, Daniel chapter 9 maybe have bells going off in your head, because just a few verses after our prayer today are some of the most controversial or easily debatable verses in all of the Old Testament. Um, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Thankfully, we don't have to go that far today. Um, we will save those verses for another time and for another teacher. Um, but in any event, um, we're probably more familiar with Daniel than we were with Habakkuk. Daniel, of course, being a staple of certainly children's Sunday school curriculum. I think we're all familiar with the things that happened, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, and the handwriting on the wall. These are things that we remember from our childhood. Um, but as, I, as I've been studying, it occurred to me that when I was a child, and perhaps for y'all too, and we learned about all these things that took place in Daniel's life and in his friends' lives, I don't know that I understood, well, how was it that Daniel came to be in the service of this Babylonian king? How did Daniel end up in Nebuchadnezzar's court? Well, just a few words to remind us how this happened, because it's helpful in order to understand our prayer today. And there's also the timeline which has been passed out that may be helpful for us as well to see when things are happening. But the first chapter of Daniel describes what initially happened in the very beginning of the Babylonian invasion. Daniel apparently was what must have been in one of the very first groups of people taken captive in about the year 605. Uh, he was one of the first ones to be exiled. Um, he, along with some of his friends, um, friends um, the likes of um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
And if those names aren't familiar to you, then perhaps we know them better as the names that they were changed to in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Apparently, there was a method to how Babylon chose which people to bring back initially. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 tells us that Daniel and his three friends were chosen to come back and do what they did because of, first of all, their youth. You should understand that Daniel was taken captive when he was probably a teenager, probably 15 or 16 years old. Um, Also, his friends were probably that age as well. Um, They were selected for their youth and also, I think, for their aptitude for learning, their intelligence, and even, in fact, for their good looks. I think that reminds or gives me, um, I could be grateful that probably I wouldn't have been chosen. Um, Daniel and his three friends apparently were handsome young men, intelligent, um, and so they were taken to be pressed into service in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Also, we should understand that what that involved um, would have been an extensive period of training and education for these young men. Um, They would have been put through an education of the Babylonian culture, the customs, the language, the literature, and the pagan religion of Babylon. And the reason for that, I think, um, was that the Babylonians, these men were going to be serving in the king's court, I think wanted to recondition these young men and take them out of where they were living and dramatically shift their worldview from what they had been brought up to believe about the one true God, and now they're brought into this pluralistic, idolatrous society, and Babylon is trying to educate them into all of their ways. And really, um, I think that's what makes it all, all the more amazing, considering the fact that, as we know from the first half of the book of Daniel, Daniel and his three friends consistently lived lives of faithfulness and obedience to God. They remain true to the God of their upbringing, to the one true God of Israel. They remain faithful. And actually, Daniel is one of those few characters in the Old Testament where it's really hard to find anything wrong with. Um, The scripture doesn't really give us any of Daniel's faults. Um, We'll say more about that here in a moment. Um, But Daniel prospers. His friends prosper. Of course, they got into some scrapes. We, We realize this. But he prospered in Nebuchadnezzar's court, perhaps um, for several reasons, but one of which was um, God gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. And this, I guess, would have been useful in the court of a pagan king. Um, And so Daniel is prospering throughout his youth and adulthood, and we're probably also familiar with Daniel's habits of prayer. Uh, We know that he was committed to pray the way that he knew that he should to his God frequently and often, From a young man until now, when we find him in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is a much older man because if we realize that he was exiled at the very beginning of the exile, and now our timeline has brought us almost to the end of the exile, so 70 years have passed that Daniel has spent in Babylon in the service of these various kings. And so if he was 15 or 16 when he was taken captive, Now, when he prays prays this prayer in chapter 9, he's probably in his 70s or 80s. Much older man, possibly even near the end of his life. Um, But his faithfulness in prayer has not abated. So, I'm going to read the first three verses of Daniel chapter 9. That will give us a bit more context. 
and then be ready to flip back to Jeremiah because we're going to read a few verses from Jeremiah and you'll see why. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherah, of Medan descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So notice what first of all led Daniel to pray. It says in verse 2 that he was observing in the books the number of years which was revealed. Um, It says specifically he was reading in Jeremiah, but we should probably assume, I think, that he probably had other writings available to him of the other prophets. He probably also had the law, maybe some of the Psalms. Um, But he's reading in Jeremiah. So flip back. We'll come right back to Daniel 9. Flip to Jeremiah chapter 25. And I think we can understand exactly what Daniel was reading. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. And then we'll look briefly at Jeremiah 29. So this is chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah writes, And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And when it will, uh, when it will, seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So there it is in verse 11, 70 years, and then flip forward to chapter 29. I'll read verses 10 through 14 of Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. See if you've heard this before. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you declares the Lord and I'll bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now There's not time for many rabbit trails this morning, but just very briefly, we're very familiar probably with Jeremiah 29, 11. If you walked into Mardell or Hobby Lobby or Lifeway, you'd probably find this verse plastered on wall art, coffee mugs, and whatever else you can plaster verses on. Let's just understand that we need to have some discernment that this verse, this promise was given to a particular people in a particular time for a particular purpose And I don't think, I don't think, based on the context, that we should use Jeremiah 29, 11 as truth for all time and for all peoples. Um, This was specifically given to God's people in the exile. God is telling them he knows the plans he has for them. He knows that he will give them a hope and a future. But I think, just as an aside, let's be careful that we don't go telling that to everyone because that is not necessarily the message that God has 
for every person and every age. So probably Daniel's been reading verses like that and um, he's realized, as of course, he knows when it was that he was exiled. He knows when that was. And he knows the year that it was now when he's reading this and so he does the math in his head and he realizes, wow, these 70 years are almost completed. If he was taken captive in the year 605 and now he's praying in the first year, as it says in chapter 9, it says the first year of Darius, the son of Asherah, a Medan descent, and there's some complexity here, but basically who's that is describing as King Cyrus of Persia. I probably don't have time to go into that, but the first year of King Cyrus, that would have been about 539 B.C. So you do the math, and that's about 66 or 67 years that have elapsed. So Daniel realizes, wow, the 70 years is almost over. Um, it's almost done. And so in light of what he's read, as it says, he's moved to put on ashes and sackcloth to fast and to pray. As you read the prayer, I'd like to read the whole thing at once rather than break it up. It flows together pretty easily. But notice perhaps six things about this prayer. I think they kind of work together. We're going to notice Daniel's posture, that is his position before the Lord, how he presents himself. We're going to notice Daniel's perspective, that is how he views the covenant community around him. We're going to see Daniel's plea, that is the thing that he actually asks of God. But notice that his posture and his perspective and his plea all focus on God. And specifically, I think we can see that his posture is based on God's position, his perspective is based on God's promise, and his plea is based on God's possession. We'll look at each of these in turn. So Daniel chapter 9, here's his prayer, starting in verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy covenant, from the commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, and fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord. But to us, open shame, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which thou hast driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through the servants and the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. 
Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord, our God, by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and thou hast made a name for thyself, as it is to this day. We have sinned, and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications, and for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. We are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Now, frankly, until some months ago, I didn't really realize this prayer was even in the Bible. I've read Daniel before. But just these words in and of itself are more reason for me And I think for us to not neglect what's contained in the pages of the Old Testament. It's an amazing prayer. So first of all, Daniel's posture. What do we learn about how God, I'm sorry, how Daniel presents himself to God? It's easy to see. It's sprinkled out throughout the entire prayer in different places. Um, His posture is basically one of humility and awareness of his own sin. Notice in verse 4. In verse 5, mostly verse 5 actually, Daniel does the same thing that David did in Psalm 51. To use the phrase of another preacher, um, David is ransacking the vocabulary of sin. He uses all these words. We've sinned, iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned aside. And I think that Daniel does this for the same reason that David did it is that Daniel is trying to convey, recognizing both the breadth and the depth of his sin. Daniel recognizes specifically that one of their failings, one of Judah's failings, was to listen to what the prophets had told them. They hadn't listened to what the prophets said. And of course, he had lived for a long time, enduring this captivivity. And I'm sure you can imagine, as he's reading the scriptures throughout this time, Surely at some point it would have gone through his mind. Why didn't we listen to what the prophet said? But things were about to change for God's people. And I think this is where I guess it's worthwhile to say that um, perhaps this prayer gives us an indication that Daniel was not entirely perfect. Obviously he wasn't perfect. He was a sinner like me and like you. But notice that every one of the times that Daniel talks about sin, it's in the first person. First person plural. He's talking about we and us. Um, We're very familiar with other episodes in Scripture where we see godly men have faults and have sin. We've seen it in the life of David, in the life of Solomon, 
We can think of occasions in Jacob's life and Moses' life and Abraham's life and Noah's life. Um, we see clear indications of these godly men's sin, and that's good for us to see because we see that they're real people like me and you. Um, the scripture doesn't give a whole lot of evidences of Daniel's sin, but here I think we clearly see that Daniel knows that he is not at all innocent. Um, all of his confession is in the first person plural. And really he takes it a step further in verses 7 and 8, and he says that what belongs to him, what belongs to Judah, he says it's open shame. Open shame belongs to he and Judah. I think that Daniel must have understood the message of Habakkuk, and that was that God's judgment was coming, and really God's judgment was deserved because the people had sinned and had not followed God's commands. And we should also say something here, I think, about the fact that we should understand, I think what Daniel saw was that people's sin, individual sin, affects the entire community. Of course, everyone in Judah was a sinner individually, but when you kind of aggregate that, it's in the covenant community of God's chosen people. Daniel knew that his sin and his fellow Hebrew sins had an effect on each other. It had a powerful influence on each other. Um, and as a result, when God brought in Babylon to bring judgment, he didn't just bring judgment to particular people that were particularly sinful everyone in the community experienced the judgment. Of course, there were those in Judah who were more rebellious than others, and there were also those that were more faithful than others, but they all experienced the same judgment from God. Um, we see this in other places in Scripture where sin is described as leaven, right? Yeast. Just a little bit of yeast, a little bit of sin kind of works its way through the entire lump of dough. I think Daniel saw that his sin and his people's sin influence one another such that now shame belonged to them for what they had done. And I think we can make the same application for us today, that we have to understand that my sin, all of our sin, has the same effect on the church today. It has an influence on each other. The things that we do that are sinful affect one another. We're not responsible for other people's sin. We're only responsible for our own but it has a detrimental effect on the community at large. But of course, I should also say that the opposite is true. Thankfully, acts of faithfulness and righteousness also have a powerful influence on the community. And I dare say that it would have been much, much harder for Daniel to live a life of faithfulness had it not been that he was with three faithful friends, right? In any event, David, uh, Daniel's posture is one of humility, and he openly confesses his sin. And I think that his posture of humility is based on God's position. Now, what do I mean by that? What is God's position? I look back at verse 4. And initially, when Daniel addresses God, he says, Alas, O Lord. And then that word Lord is the word that he normally uses talking about God in the rest of the prayer. And this is not God's covenant name that Daniel is using. This is not Yahweh. This is Adonai. This is that word or name for God that Daniel uses there and in the rest of the prayer almost exclusively. Adonai is a word that describes God as master or overlord. It's a position of authority. It indicates God's position. 
And then immediately after this, he says, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. That word God is Elohim. He's addressing God, more God in the abstract. That term describes God as the creator, the one who has made all things and sustains all things. It gets at God's majesty, the universal God. These are names and words that Daniel is using to describe God's greatness. Perhaps I should also say, verse 4, if we use the word awesome carelessly, if we use the word awesome to describe a Chick-fil-A sandwich or a movie, well then what word do we have left for God? Let's be careful with the word awesome. This is how Daniel addresses God. We also see God's position in verse 15. He refers to God's powerful acts, his power that he used to bring Israel out of bondage in Egypt. So I think contrasting his posture, that of lowliness, humility, and sin, he's looking at God's position high and lifted up, majesty, power. Also in verse 7, he says righteousness belongs to God. So perhaps now we're seeing that not only is he contrasting just high and low, but he's contrasting God's righteousness versus his own sin and the community's sin. And that, of course, is mankind's fundamental problem. A holy and righteous God, a sinful people that are separated because of their sin. But I think we can also see in verse um, 9 that Daniel understood the solution to that problem. He understood the solution to a holy and righteous God versus sinful people. He says in verse 9, but also to God belongs compassion and forgiveness. I think Daniel had a keen understanding to the solution of the problem of sin. which could only be found in God's forgiveness and, wait for it, God's loving kindness. In verse 4, He keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, if you've been here in the previous weeks of our study, you'll realize that this is now the fourth time in five weeks that we've seen this term, loving kindness, occur in these men and women's prayers. Um, This is that Hebrew word, hesed. It speaks to God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty, the love to which God has obligated himself. If we think back to last summer when we studied true community, there was a Greek word that we were always talking about. Perhaps someone remembers what that was. Koinonia, right. And so out of this study, perhaps the word we should remember is this Hebrew word, hesed, God's loving kindness. And I think the reason that the biblical writers are making much of this, perhaps, is that I think this is the way that they best understood God's grace or perhaps the way that they saw God's grace most most richly displayed towards them. Um, Now, how do they know that God loved them? Well, because God had obligated himself to. He had made an oath to do so, first with Abraham, and then with Moses and the community at Sinai. And maybe the best parallel I can think of this for us is that how do we know that God loves us? How do we know that God is gracious to us? Well, I think the way that God's grace is most richly displayed towards us is in who? It's in a person. It's in the person of Christ. Um, 
We know from Ephesians 1, when Paul talks about all the blessings we have, we all receive those blessings how? In Christ. We know that God loves us and is gracious towards us because he's given us his one and only son. And as we know, also Jesus described that he was the new covenant for us. And so Daniel knew and saw God's love and grace most clearly displayed in the fact that God had made a commitment to love his people in this way. And so Daniel's posture, God's position, humility, sin, shame, and God's position is majesty, power, but also great love, great kindness, and great mercy. Now we see Daniel's perspective, verses 11 through 14. We'll see both Daniel's perspective and God's promise. This perhaps is the first prayer in this study that could be considered an intercessory prayer, that is a prayer that's prayed on the behalf of other people. Daniel has constantly in mind his people in Judah. Verses 11 through 14 clearly talk about what's happened to Judah, what God has done, what they've experienced. He's recounting the judgment that came. Um, and interestingly, what, what Daniel says in verse 12, he wouldn't have been there to witness this, but when he says in verse 12, the second part of the verse, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. This refers to when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple destroyed in the year 586. Um, I think it would have really been unthinkable for God's people to imagine that that would really happen. As we saw last week, not only had God's city and temple been destroyed, but also the monarchy stopped. It would appear that the line of David came to an end. I think it would have been a severe test of Judah's faith which is why I think Daniel describes it in these terms. Nothing like this has ever happened before. So his perspective is focused on how this has affected the community. It's not just affected him. In some ways, he's had a relatively stable life, living in and amongst the king and in the king's court. But I think his concern and perspective is most of all focused on others. Focused on others. And I think his perspective that's focused on others is based on God's promise, which we also see in verses 11 through 14. Um, if we recall from last week, we talked about the fact relative to Habakkuk that thinking about God's covenant, there was both a blessing and what else? A curse. There was both. And now they had been enduring this curse for the past 70 years or so. Um, but God had also given a very hopeful message. That yes, he had promised blessing and curse, but he had also said that if you do, when you do, experience the judgment and the chastening for your sin, God had also given them a promise that if you do confess, if you do return to me, if you do turn from your sin, then I will restore you and I will bring you back into this land. Turn back to Deuteronomy briefly, and we'll see, I think, the promise that Daniel is hopeful of. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And of course, this was given many, 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 many years before this. This was even before they had entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4. 
So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. So God had given Israel this promise that if they would turn, return to the Lord, then God would bring them back. Um, I think maybe it's also worth saying that we should also be dispelling in the midst of the series, dispelling a myth that sometimes exists is the way people think about God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament. Sometimes people think of the God of the Old Testament as one of wrath and judgment and think of the God of the New Testament as a God of love and grace. And I hope that that myth has already been busted. Hopefully we don't, we don't believe that. We shouldn't. Because I think just in the way that these people are praying, these believers of the Old Testament are praying, yes, they have experienced God's judgment. There are um, very... Um, graphic depictions of God's judgment in the Old Testament. But we must understand that still their hope was founded on God's promise of restoration and God's promise of redemption. Um, we saw this with Moses. It was salvation and redemption that Moses had hoped in in his prayer. We saw it with Hannah. It was her um, rejoicing and her salvation from God's enemies and also rejoicing in the hope of resurrection we saw it with David, he was calling out for free and unmerited forgiveness of his sin. And even for Habakkuk last week, even though he was fearful of what was coming, he was afraid, he knew still in the midst of that, God was pressing forward his plan of redemption, which was a plan founded on God's grace. I think Daniel understands what we also saw last week, is that God's judgment is the exception to the rule of his mercy not the other way around. God's judgment is the exception to the rule of his mercy. God's promise hadn't failed, and in fact, God had made a promise to which Daniel could place his hope in. And so he does finally, in verse 16 and 17, he makes his plea. So we're 12 verses in before Daniel even asked for anything. Let's see what he asked for in verse 16. He says, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. And then in the last part of verse 17, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. I think that Daniel asked for two things. He asked for God's wrath to be turned away from Jerusalem and for God's face to shine on the desolate sanctuary. Let's think about each of these. The first is easy enough. We've talked about it. Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's been 50 years laying in ruin. And so Daniel asked that it be restored. They be restored to Jerusalem. I think he was also maybe looking forward to what we'll see next week. Um, hoping for the repopulation when people will return and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Um, I think there's an urgency to Daniel's plea. He urgently desires this. 
I mean, again, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I don't think we can really understand the connection that God's people had with the promised land. We live in a very different place, a very different time, um, different context. Um, to Jerusalem in particular, um, it's possible to read the whole history of the Old Testament in terms of Israel's relationship with the promised land. And it might go like this. Um, very early in Scripture, in Genesis and Exodus, you have the promise itself, the promise of the promised land. Um, and then you have the preparation for the people to enter in, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, preparing God's people to enter in. Then you finally have, in Joshua, they finally take the land, they possess the land, and then following in the period of the judges and the kings, you have the ruling of the land. They're there, they're ruling then, of course, you have the loss of the land because of their sin. They lose the land, and now this is where they are, and Daniel is praying that they be restored, and we'll see that next week when you look at Nehemiah. The last historical thing to happen in the Old Testament is their restoration to the land. So Israel's collective life for a thousand years had revolved around their being led to, planted in, but then their loss of the covenant land of promise. So then Daniel pleads with God to bring about this restoration. Um, remove his wrath from Jerusalem. And then secondly, to let his face shine on your desolate sanctuary. What does this mean? What is Daniel really asking for? Well, I think we ask the question, well, what does it mean for God's face to shine on something? Well, as we saw in Moses' prayer, he talked about God having a right hand of power that he led his people out of Egypt. And I made the point that obviously God is being personified with human characteristics. God doesn't have a right hand. God is spirit. And of course, God doesn't have a face either. But what does it mean for God's face to shine on something? Well, you may be thinking about other places in Scripture where the same language is used. Maybe the most um, immediate one that might pop to mind might be the Aaronic benediction, right? From Numbers chapter 6, you're familiar with this. Aaron says this, The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So there's God's face shining. And one other place, another example where a psalmist asked for this. This is from Psalm 80. Three times in this psalm, the psalmist says this, O God, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So if we were to use that as an example, and also from Numbers, what does it mean for God's face to shine on something? I think it has to do with God's grace and God's salvation. Make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. I think that Daniel, again, is having God's grace and God's salvation in mind. But he's not asking for a people to be saved or for a people to have his face shine on. He's asking for God to shine his face on the desolate sanctuary. I think he's referring to the temple itself, which, of course, had been destroyed. The temple's not there, and so what is Daniel asking for? Well, we think about how God's presence manifested itself in the life of Israel. We know that from the time of Moses all the way through the time of the kings, God's special presence dwelled where? It dwelled first in the tabernacle, 
And then after the temple was built in Solomon's time, God's special presence dwelled in the temple. And where specifically was God's presence found in those places? In the ark, or right above the ark, right? Um, so if Daniel is asking for the Lord's face to shine on his desolate sanctuary, well, the temple didn't exist anymore. And where was the ark? Uh, no one knows. He didn't know where it is. We don't know where it is. The ark has been lost to history. Um, I think what Daniel was asking for is, Lord, please manifest yourself somehow in your city, in your temple. Make your presence known. Now, Daniel didn't realize, I don't think, exactly what was happening in God's overall plan. God's glory was not going to return to the temple after it got rebuilt. In fact, we see from Ezekiel that God's glory departed the temple, I think, before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. But we know that God was still planning for his glory to be revealed to Israel, perhaps not in the way that Daniel was hoping for, well, in a certain way it was, but not exactly the same way. How was God's glory ultimately revealed and brought back to his people? Well, in the words of the Apostle John, John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think what Daniel longed for was for God's saving presence to be made manifest to God's people, and it would eventually happen in the person of Christ. And I think Daniel's plea, his request for this to occur, was based on the fact that Judah and Jerusalem were God's possession. God's possession, the final part of the prayer. Um, Daniel was confident to ask for this because he knew that they belonged to God. It says, I'm sorry, let me find it. the very end of the prayer, thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Jerusalem, the people of Judah, they belonged to God. They were his. And really, verse 18 is pretty amazing. While Daniel may not have fully understood how God's presence was going to be manifested eventually, um, he did exactly know, he really understood the way that God related to his people. As he says in verse 18, that He's not presenting these supplications before God on account of his own merits because of God's great compassion. Um, I think in the end, Daniel expected God to listen and to forgive and to take action because of God's possession, because God had made a promise to restore them, also because of God's position, one of forgiveness and compassion. And also his possession. The people belonged to God. And really I think that, I hope that this prayer really is a model prayer. This prayer should give us confidence in the way we should pray. Um, because the things that Daniel knew were true about God and his people are still true for us. Um, we are as much God's possession as Judah ever was. Of course the church is God's covenant people corporately. 
with he as our Heavenly Father, we are his sons and daughters, and it is with that spirit that we are enabled to cry out to him in prayer. And so as for Daniel, we should also have hope that God will listen, God will forgive, and God will act. Alrighty, that clock is slow, so I'm not as bad as I thought I was. What can we learn from this? Well, two perhaps general points of counsel. How can we use this prayer to help us understand how we can pray? Well, I think it's worthwhile to say something about God's sovereignty and our prayers. Um, at the beginning of the chapter, we knew, we saw that Daniel began to pray based on what he read in Jeremiah. There was a prophecy made by God through Jeremiah that the captivity was going to last for 70 years. It was a fixed period of time. Daniel reads this, he understands, and what does he do? Well, he prays and he asks for God to bring it about. Lord, you've said in your word that you're going to do this, now Lord, please do it. God had already determined it, but Daniel asked for it. Now, I think that raises the question, if God is sovereign, why pray? Now, you may think that's a cheeky question. I think it's a worthwhile question. Think about this. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11 says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, and I will do it. If God really has declared the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which haven't been, why should we pray? Or consider Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in Daniel chapter 5, chapter 4, I'm sorry. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does, according to his will, and the host of heaven and the people of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? If God is sovereign, why pray? One more example from the Psalms. Psalm 103, 19 says... The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. In Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and all the seas and all the deeps. If God is sovereign, why do we pray? Well, I'll give us two answers to this question. And these are two answers from men more learned than I. The first, I'll give us an answer from another teacher, theologian Derek Thomas says this, quote, God is not only sovereign in that he has determined the end, but he is also sovereign in that he has determined the means by which the end will be accomplished, and that means includes our praying, end quote. See, our prayers are contained within God's sovereign plan. I think there's some clarity there, but still some mystery and we can't really know how this really works itself out. Um, our finite minds can't really understand how God's sovereignty and our prayers go together. But Daniel saw the prophecy in Jeremiah, and he prayed that God would do it, not because I think he was afraid that the prophecy might not come true, 
not because he thought that God might not actually do it. I think he prayed because he knew that God would do it. The second answer might be this. This is from Ian Duguid. Quote, to the question, if God is sovereign, why should you pray? Daniel would have responded, it is because God is sovereign that I pray. It was precisely when Daniel read in the scriptures the plan of God to judge Babylon and restore his people and saw that sovereign plan starting to be put effect in history that he lifted up his voice in prayer. Daniel didn't turn to prayer because he thought that the prophecy of the 70 years might somehow fail or be delayed if he didn't pray. Rather, it was because he was confident that his sovereign God would do exactly what he promised to do. And so he poured out his heart to God in prayer. I think this was Daniel's way of praying the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, of course, God's kingdom will come. Of course, God's will will be done. Nothing is going to stop that from happening. Our prayers aren't going to stop that from happening. Rather, I think our prayers are to move our heart's desire and our will, move them into alignment with God's will. Um, Daniel had a great desire for the exile to end, and he saw in Jeremiah that the exile was going to end, and so he prayed in agreement with God's will. We saw this with Habakkuk last week, but you may say that, well, Daniel and Habakkuk were exceptional cases. Well, Habakkuk was given a message from God himself, and Daniel, through Jeremiah, there was direct revelation about this particular time in history. Well, that's true. In a sense, they are exceptional cases. I mean, we don't have any direct prophetic revelation to us about how long our trial is going to last or how any other particular event in our lives is going to turn out. We don't have that knowledge in the way that Daniel and Habakkuk had. Um, but, and you may see where this is going, what we do have is what? We have God's word. We have this, and perhaps now um, it's useful to say that it is God's word that reveals his will to us. And just very quickly, you know, we can think of God's will in two ways. There's God's sovereign secret will, the will by which he brings all things about. He's planned it and he will do it. Now, we can't know that will. That is why it's called secret, right? Well, we can waste a lot of time trying to figure out his secret will. But the other part of his will we think of is his preceptive will or his revealed will, and that is the will that God has for the way that we should live, the way he wants his people to live. And how do we know that will? We know it from the scripture. So, understanding that our prayers work together somehow with God's sovereignty, the second and last thing is we should use the scripture in our praying. Um, Obviously, we understand that we are free to and we should pray for most requests that come to us. When we talk to friends and believers about how can I pray for you and they talk about something that's coming up, you know, the job they want to get, um, the trial they're going through, the sickness they're enduring, um, we should pray for those things. Now, we don't know what God's will is in each of those situations as far as how those situations are going to turn out. We can't know that. But we can still pray for them. But the thing we can do and the thing we can know 100% 
is that God has given us his word, both commands and promises, that we should pray for those people in those situations. Um, this is the way of using God's word to pray God's will for God's people. Now, just as an example, how does this really work? Well, I was talking on the phone. I can talk about him because he's not here. Um, with Jamal, Jamal Reed, a few days ago. Of course, he and Jessica are going to have a baby soon. We're talking about that. You know, Jamal, how can I pray for you all? He says, well, the prayer request I have is that I really want to be able to have some time off from work. I'm not sure how that's going to work when the baby's born. Okay, I will pray for that, Jamal. Lord, please let Jamal have the time off from work that he'd like to have. I don't know. Jamal doesn't know if he'll be able to have that time off or not. We can pray for it and ask for it, but the other thing that we ought to do in a situation like that, and you can think of lots of other examples, is think of some scripture that we know is true for Jamal or anyone in that situation and pray that for them as well. Pray that for them, that he would be strengthened by the power of God's grace, that the Lord would be honored in whatever decision is made about him having to work or not, and that he would give strength and peace to Jessica and Jamal in the process of this. Whatever the actual situation may be, find things in God's word. I have a few examples that I think can work for lots of situations. I fear that maybe I shouldn't read them all to us. But verses like Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition present your requests to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God which transcends all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that can be very useful to pray for people. Or Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That can be very useful to pray for someone in a particular situation. Or Colossians 1, 9, and 10, the things that Paul prays for for his people is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual understanding and insight and that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing good fruit in every good work. We can pray those things for God's people, no matter what the situation. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men, in such a way that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Whatever it is, whether people are, um, whatever the situation might be, pray for that, not knowing what the outcome might be, but use the word to pray for people as well. Um, these are just a few examples. As Dan might say, there are 10,000 other ones that we could find in Scripture to pray for people. And it's helpful because Scripture gives us the vocabulary. Well, finally, when we talk about praying regarding God's sovereignty and God's will, understand that we're never going to change God. Our prayers are not meant to change God. Rather, our prayers are meant to change us. Daniel was praying in this way. He wanted to be changed and forgiven, to be restored to God's holy city, and so he prayed. And so I think we can use the word to pray to change our position, change our perspective, 
change the things that we ask for to that which is most pleasing to the Lord. And that, this was the way that Daniel prayed. And I think by God's grace, it can be the way that we pray as well. I should pray right now, and we'll be done. Lord, thank you for your word and for its um, truthfulness and insight, um, for giving us uh, men as examples, also women as examples of how we should live in ways pleasing to you. Um, Lord, thank you for your word that gives us um, exactly your will for us and the way we should live. And Lord, I pray you would help us to use it in the way that we pray, understanding, as Daniel prayed, that our prayers are not brought to you based on our own merit, but it's all of your grace, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.